Hello, this is Bill Chambers, and welcome to another episode of the Faster Podcast. My objective is to interview world-class performers to discover how it is that they do what they do, what makes them unique and fascinating, their success mindset, habits, and behaviors, and share these insights to challenge and inspire you. My guest today is Noel Donaldson. Noel has created and led teams to win at the highest level in rowing, both at World Championships and winning Olympic Games for more than 30 years. Today, we are going to have a conversation about the connection between high-performance sport and business. What is it that we can learn from Noel in how he built and led some of the best teams in the world, the challenges he faced and the lessons learnt? Before we get into the interview with Noel, if you liked the episode, please remember to leave us a review and share it with your friends. That really helps us out. So, Noel, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here, Bill. You know, the last time we spoke, we we, we talked around some themes of rowing and how it's evolved, and I've received a ton of messages uh, of people, how they've enjoyed it, and also a few messages with relation to how asking to, to dig in with you on how you've actually built up these teams and how you've created winning teams to focus on a, a joint goal. And this has been done consistently through quite a few Olympics, uh, through the Victorian Institute of Sport, and uh, most recently with New Zealand. So you've gone from one country, one system in one country to another. So you've, you've seen all sorts of different setups and you've had to start again, so to speak. So I'd be really curious to to get into that with you on how you've built up teams to go conquer a challenge and maybe draw some continuity between the connection between high-performance sport and business. So what business leaders can learn from your approach on how you've built up the teams, how you've identified the, the, the mission and developed the goals and the roadmap towards the goals uh, with that team to achieve success. Well, I'm more than happy to help, Bill, and um, I'll reference a couple of things you've said. Firstly, uh, if on any social platform, if I get one like, I take the attitude it's a lot better than none, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I'm here. I'm here to help, you know, and, and, and I, that's one of my mantras is to try and help others not make the same mistakes I did too. So, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to sort of have a, a talk with you today about uh, the topic of you know, building successful teams uh, and the like. So. Let's get into it and enjoy it. You know, how you actually approach the aspiration, identified where do we want to go, the long-term vision and some of the short-term goals to get to there, how you assessed the current status and how ready uh, the team was to, to reach that aspiration, the current etc. how you actually designed the plan with the team, uh, the ongoing execution and support, how you acted and managed the journey, and the learning organisation, how you evolved and continuously improved. Because I know that through other conversations with you, you know you don't know what you don't know, and you you may head down one one straight and discover, wow, we have an opportunity here, we have a challenge there, which presents a lot of 
uh, different issues in a, in a system that need to be addressed. So I'd be really interested to understand how you evolved in, in the team. So bearing that framework in mind, and of course, we've had a, a combo before this to, to kind of settle on that, where would you like to, to start? Well, I, w- what I'd like to actually say, and um, when, when, I, when I do you know, speak in these sort of forums there too, I don't hide the fact that I've you know, been a 30-plus year professional at the, uh, at the very elite end in sport, not that there's any honour or glory necessarily in that, but the thing I can share is that how it's continually evolved as a process in terms of leading teams in any given situation over years. And so, you know, to reflect back on a particular successful campaign or a way of doing things 20 years ago may have no relevance in today's context. So I think that's a really important thing. Of course, there's learnings all the way through all of that, and there are some consistent themes to leadership that will uh, are in place and will remain in place. But in terms of the journey itself and how you construct it all, I think you've got to make sure that you do look at it from a horses for courses situation. What do you need on any particular situation? How do you build something? And, and, and I think you're right. There are synergies with business. And what one business is for a particular period of time may not be how it actually is. Um, in, a, in, in a later part of the journey, as things evolve, opposition come along, you find gaps in what you're doing and the like. So it's it's a very evolutionary process, Bill, from my point of view. So that's sort of my starting premise, but I'm happy if you, um, you, you channel down into some more specific. So, Noel, perhaps we can kick it off with um, the team that you were working with prior to starting to work with the Australian national team and leading the awesome foursome. Could you talk a little bit about your experience with Victoria? Was that the first leadership experience you had? Uh, what was the team that you, you went into, the Victorian Institute of Sport? Maybe just give a bit of a, give the listener a bit of an indication of the situation that you, you faced there. Yeah, well, I, I had had an earlier sort of life uh, as, a, as a schoolmaster and as a head of department. I was the uh, head of the physical education department. I was head of rowing and head of football, Australian rules football. So I had sort of at a school level sort of some leadership experience, but because that clashed with sort of international rowing, I came out of that and I went into these campaigns, you know, initially at the Victorian Institute of Sport. But we're talking um, close to 30 years ago in that sort of point of view, Bill. And I think the the key point in those days is you could lead quite dictatorially in those early days and you know, I was a verbose type of person so you could bring people along the journey but we made that journey very much about ego we were actually doing quite well before I even started in that role so I, I inherited success for want of a better word so it was easy to continue along there and so we just took our egos and our confidence and our brashness and um in Australia, we have uh, several states, of course, and Victoria is one of the second biggest in terms of population and, and uh, you know, one of the more successful along with New South Wales in a lot of things, you know, certainly from a business point of view and in sport where, you know, we're one of the strongest states. So we wanted to make sure everybody knew about that. But that's not necessarily a really sustainable model. And, of course, over the last 20 years as a state, you know, we've been in and out of some successful campaigns and the like. So... I don't think it was necessarily anything that I planned uh, did it, but 
we, we ran that basically by telling everybody how good we were and the like. But I think some of the crew experiences that started around that same sort of time there was very much about building a program and building a team and building success. Did you, did you engage the team in co-creating the plan there or is it a little bit more, gentlemen, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it? Certainly, um, at, at, a, at, at, at my first Australian crew was, of course, you know, four guys from Victoria and three of them from the same club. So it was a, it was a small, powerful entity in, in its right. And they were also members of the state team. But the national team is probably the one to focus in on there too, whereby you know, I, I, I was a youngish type coach and they were quite mature athletes. I was a bit older than they were, but I was still the leader of that. They'd had some earlier success and had these state successes, but not a lot necessarily of international success. But the, the national program was done a particular way and had been from when I was a competitor sort of in 1979. And these guys were experienced enough and they were probably frustrated that they weren't gaining success. So they hatched a plan about being able to find another way to do it, of which I was part of the plan. So the very early time was we, we did this together. But my role within all of that was, was actually to be someone needs to lead it. You know, you can sit around with an open book and dream and whatever, uh, but someone has to facilitate. And so that's a process I've done a few times over the years in terms of, and I, and I think you, in sport, maybe a little bit more than business. You know, you are a, a leader, but a facilitator a lot of the time sort of within that particular role but they had a dream to do something different. And the, the difference in those days was Australia's number one boat was generally the, the, the men's eight. And we had more men rowing internationally than we had women in those days. And we're now balancing the ledger you know, from that sort of point of view. But these guys had been in that process and had one win, some of them, but then they'd been in unsuccessful campaigns as well. They wanted to row in some smaller boats where they could control what they were doing a little bit more. And uh, so that was the the abstract view they actually had towards how they felt they could actually succeed. And we were able then to put that together quite quickly. So the first task was to actually get ourselves into the game and get selected, which actually happened. And we had some immediate success, but the plan really was hatched a bit more from that. You know, we, I don't think we stumbled over knowing what to do, but by knowing that, that the plan had some legitimacy and some ability to actually succeed, we pretty much mapped it out from that point on there too. So we thought, well, we, we've got the ball rolling, but we need to know what we're wanting to do. So, th so then we actually were able to sit back and plan how we wanted to execute the rowing side of things, the technical side of it. What did our training really look like? You know, how could we periodise this and how could we start to target a couple of years ahead and have some vision about the 1992 Olympic Games? So this all started in 1990. And, so uh, if I if I just pause here for a second, so you're saying that the the aspiration was clear, that the crew knew what they wanted. You were engaged in that. You had a shared uh, aspiration. And do I hear you correctly that you it's a co-creation with them of the plan? Very much so. Very much so. From from that sort of point of view, because they were they were into this plan conceptually. Um, before I re really started to actually be the day-to-day -day co coach. So then we created the opportunity, got selected. Uh, and the most important thing, I think, within this is because we had some 
instant international success is what you needed to do. They knew the plan could work. So, so they like the quick wins, Noel. You're saying you've you've got a plan. You've sought, you, you've did you have to sell it to the Victorian Institute of Sport or the Australian? No, we, no. we did this. We did to the Australian Rowing, and um, to the credit of them, they were able to be adaptable in terms of knowing that, that that you had the best athletes in the country here. They just succeeded. They gave us gave us the opportunity to prove it to them, uh, and we didn't let them down, so to speak. Which is you know, that theme comes out, will come out in business. Trust us, you know, you gave us an opportunity. We've got the results here. Now run with us. And they were more than happy to run with us. We actually had a choice between a Coxster or a Coxus Four for those people who understand rowing. And we got beaten in one, uh, not not because we weren't good enough. We hit some bad water. And then we actually rowed the other boat, the Coxus Four, and we broke the world best time and won what is now known as a World Cup in those days. So it was, we were off and running, but that then gave us a really good amount of confidence to then come back together and be able to articulate the plan in much more detail. Um, and, so you were iterating it as you, as you were going then? We, we were. You never make it up as you go. You know, there's always um, bits and pieces that you plan out, but we were able there once we knew that it could actually work and because these guys then stayed in it for quite a few years, you could replicate that type of plan, not exactly over and over again, because it did have to change. There were periods where they were beaten and had to come back and personnel change and the like. But the concept of how to go about it and involving them all the way through in what they needed to do and then being able to plan a physical training load, a technical model that you want uh, to test them and evaluate them, um, to get the race results on the board, to be able to make this plan continue to work, was, I would say, well thought out, well planned, well constructed and well executed. Uh, and I do think, you know, a thing like that had very much parallels to business at the time. But part of our plan was also enjoying it. Part of our plan was to make ourselves look like we were clowns a bit overseas and have people look at us as well, which comes a bit out of that old Victorian self-confidence model there too you know and when you get on a roll and you get successful then often the success will breed the success as well mr momentum uh, it's, it's a big one bill and 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 and, and, and we, you and i haven't talked about it but you jotted me a note down there and i didn't use the word momentum but when we're talking about the sport of rowing which is teams within a team the concept of momentum is hellishly important you know when one crew does well, and then when another crew does well, everybody starts to believe, you know. So you mightn't be the highest-ranked crew in the overall team, but you believe in your team. You believe in what the, the sport's set up and the infrastructure around it and the like, and that you can do it as well. And sometimes that's not necessarily winning, but it might be coming second or third or qualifying for an Olympic Games and the like. And, and everyone else gets the joy of that there too. So momentum is a extremely important, successful component in sport. I think in business too, Noel. So when we look at a, a program of change or a transformation that's going in or a new business leader takes over or a marketing leader, uh, getting those quick successes to get some confidence and to build that, that feeling of, of achievement, it's tracking to a plan of goals, the roadmap that that's either self-funding the change or it's actually creating confidence, as you mentioned, within the team 
to say, hey, this really does work, or we are, we're getting some setbacks, but we're also getting some wins. What can we learn from this? How do we adapt? What do we need to change? I like what you said about the fact that we don't wing it. There's a, there's a plan in place, but I get the sense that you were quite adaptable and you were able to, to, to learn from the wins and losses, like not making the Cox four, but setting the world's best in the, in the Cox's four. It's a pretty clear indicator that you, the crew is kind of feeling more comfortable in that boat and you've got some success there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, without sort of using you know, the opportunities and things that I went through, I'm sure businesses could be the same. When we when we started it, we were really only looking forward. You know, there was some solid history, but we looked forward. But then once you get through that campaign, the next campaign, particularly if you, you pull back, you have a break, you restart again, you get beaten again, you've then got to look backwards and forwards at the same time. You've very much got to then analyse where you are in a particular part at the time and how far away you are from the benchmark and what you've got to do in the meantime. So th that adaptability and the need to change the plan is really important. And, and from a pure physiological sort of point of view, um, and I know this is a long time ago, but there are some still some synergies for today there too, is that for one campaign we built up two, for another campaign we pulled back and then and then went again, so to speak, you know, because that was what was required for that particular campaign. So, yes, I think adaptability, knowing your people, knowing where you're at, at, knowing how long you've got before you want to achieve something is all really important part of constructing the plan. How is it um, that you went about getting support? What was your support team like for the awesome foursome and going to the 92, 96 games? Yeah, back in those days there, um, we certainly didn't have the support that we have today. You know, we have wonderful government support. The National Federation's funded more you know, and, and it's, it's got more wings and tentacles about getting that support out. We have all of our state institutes, even though we had the state institute in those days there too. When you travel as a national team, you you travel with the national team staff. staff so you, you could actually be quite selective about the people who were in your team. And so the team has ended up being, in terms of your inner team or your support staff team, was quite small, but that was very reliant on, on just a few people who you knew that you, you couldn't work without, so to speak. You know, we had a great doctor. He was a funny fella. Um, uh, Bill Webb was his name. He was a, just a legend in Australian rowing, but very unique there. We had a massage therapist uh, Luke Atwell, who was as much as a sports psychologist as he was a, a massage therapist who was close to the guys, was their age, was, was he could relate to them, he could communicate well, he could communicate with me. And, and we, we created a, a really great team. At one stage there, we had a guy, Jeff Bond, who's a very well-known Australian sports psychologist as well there too, who could, who could tailor what the athletes needed at the time for what they needed, whether it was working directly with them or working with me and the like. But outside of that, you know, we had Ronald Barch. He was a head coach. He was a really good mentor of mine and someone I could have a open conversation and called it as it was. But, yeah, the team was much smaller, but it was very, very much you controlled it. They were the people you wanted around you, the people you trusted, the people the athletes trusted. But as things grow over time, of course, you know, the, the model changes somewhat, you know, the the team appoints the personnel and then they work with the crews and the like. So you've got to relearn your communication channels or which is the service that you need more 
of in your team and the like too. So it's certainly changed over the years from it being really boutique and your people to being something whereby it was part of the, the wider fraternity. And and, uh, uh, and it, at times, there, you know, you don't get a choice either. You know, you this is the person who's employed now versus someone who was a volunteer offering their services to you. So the rules change in terms of how you went about it. But I think to get a good team and to get a, 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 the crews within the team working with specific people was a lot about communication and trust and what you needed more specifically for your particular uh, crew or team. And it didn't mean that you had every single component that was on offer either. You may not needed that for your campaign. How often did you, you come together to, uh, to talk as an inner team? In, in, in these days, it's very regular. You know, you, you're talking to your inner team and it depends on the size of your inner team, you know, and how we describe that. Um, so, for, for example, with the Kiwi pair in New Zealand, the inner team for them, apart from, say, their immediate family, which was an important part of that there too, uh, the physiologist and myself was very much a really close team yet there was a slightly broader team that included a, a range of other service providers too. So, again, sometimes it, de- it, it depends on the size of that and, and the circumstance. In my work at the Victorian Institute of Sport, I've worked you know, in two stints there too, I have a service providing team who are really loyal to me and we meet every week. So, mm-hmm. again, the model is a little bit different depending on what it used to be to what it actually needs to be. And certainly the inner team, though, often that'll be a daily thing, but the wider team and the more wider that gets, the more uh, infrequent, but um, but it remains formal, you know, and, and that's one of the big changes, certainly in sport. And the thing we need to be careful about that is to make sure that it's still humanised um, and the like. Otherwise, everyone will have a job to do. Uh, we talk about multidisciplinary teams, uh, we all want to work that way, but it doesn't necessarily always work that way, you know. So the skill of then the leader and uh, the people inside that there is, how do we make this work more effectively? Now, if we just go back and, and maybe close out the awesome force and, and for the listener that's not so familiar with rowing, this was maybe you can just give some context as to the victories and the success that this the, the sheer dominance that this team had, and then maybe talk a little bit about what a what a team meeting would look like, who would be there, what you'd discuss, and how you would iterate the plan. Yeah, I mean, and again, that that would be reasonably fluid. But the the awesome foursome, and it was coined and spelt two different ways. The OAR version came in as a as a you know, coining the rowing phrase, of course, and it was. It was uh, coined by a Melbourne journalist by the name of Bruce Eva um, back in 1990 when, when we first uh, had, had the crew. Um, but though, a lot, most of the time with those crew meetings in those days there, leading up to the 92 success, you know, your meetings would be just the crew and the coach and before you'd even bring any of your support staff actually in in terms of what you needed to do. And, and, and they, they were able to win the World Championships in 1990, 91, 92, uh, had a bit of sabbatical in 93, came back, rode domestically, won some domestic races in 94, uh, got back competing again in 1995 with a, um, with the same 
four that had won in 1992, came fifth in the world. So some really good learnings from that. One crew member dropped out, a new member in Drugin, in, and the crew won the 1996 uh, gold medal. So the, it was ours to lose in 92, and it was certainly ours to win in 1996. So they became different campaigns. Um, injuries um, uh, and another break in 97 meant we came back and in 98 we rode a Cox 4, rode two pairs within it, won multiple medals at the World Championship, uh, gold again in the Cox 4 and gold in one of the pairs, silver in the other pair. So that was a really good campaign. But uh, then AIDS started to weary and um, individuals began to go their own ways. But some of those individuals stayed really to the forefront in other boats for another eight years, basically, before it sort of lost the, 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 the thread of the, the guys who actually started it. So it was a 10-plus-year a journey, at least in terms of international success as a four uh, and then in other boats towards the end, of which towards the end I'd moved on to a more senior leadership position uh, within Rowing Australia, but uh, up until taking on that there, I'd sort of run most of the campaigns for for their success. Uh, and and they did vary over time. But your other question was, you know, what does a team meeting look like? Sort of probably the most powerful team meeting we would have had was uh, leading into the um, uh, 92 campaign when we did a drivers and inhibitors. So what was going to make us go well? What wasn't going to make us go well? Um, one night after we'd had a We'd had a session in an environmental chamber, so they're never fun. Uh, turned the heat up because we were always going to go internationally into hot conditions. And then we went back to Mike Mackay's house, actually, and uh, we sat there with, a, with in those days, it was butcher's paper, and we hatched the plan, you know. So that's as tell us, tell as... us a little bit more about that butcher's paper and hatching the plan. Sounds interesting. Well, it was just the old A-frame, you know, you, you stand up there and you conduct the band and you put the word inhibitors up, what's going to get in your way, and and uh, you put the word uh, drivers up, which is what the things you're going to make you succeed, and you write all your notes down, and it, it's it's a it's a process not unlike businesses would actually go through where you, you, just, you mud map all the, your good ideas and then you bring it to a conclusion with, you know, whether it's one or two or three, I think we had three in those days. You know, what are the three main things we need to do and what are the three main things we've got to avoid doing to ensure that we were successful? So it didn't necessarily articulate the goals, but it certainly underpinned how we were going to go about achieving the things we needed to achieve. And, um, you know, you, it's a long time ago now, but basically we executed those things really, really well. It held you to account. It put trust in one another. You know, you knew what the plan was and the like. So, yeah, I, I think that that methodology has been very much used in business, uh, and, and well, under different names and 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 variations. Areas, you know, it's been widely widely used. You know, in terms of people being able to stay on track. I know, know it's used as a um, a team uh, work company here in Melbourne called Leading Teams. They work a lot with. Uh, football and team sports and they use those same sorts of principles you know about the group getting together and deciding their own outcome and holding themselves accountable to it so yeah i totally agree with you noel and that's often coined as co-creation where and some companies have even put it out to the entire firm to to come up with strategies for large companies 
that's all well and good, but it needs someone to facilitate it. So my sense is that you were helping to facilitate that, correct? Yeah, and at any stage when you reevaluate a plan, now whether it be what your training plan actually is or the like, someone you can't just sit there and design tomorrow's training than the next day. You know, someone has to take the lead on that, and that's often probably seen as you know a role of a particular coach. But you certainly want to bring people along the journey if you want them to train hard and you want them to really give of their best then they need to feel invested in that, that they have an ownership over it. And each individual will be different within that realm. You know, some individuals are as manically interested in it as I am, and others only want to know that macro view and really trust the fact and are very thankful for you that you involve them in the process. So, again, it's not a... When you're doing those sort of things there too, it's not a one-size-fits-all, and some will want to get far more involved and others not, you know. But you must involve them all in the process, that's for sure. Okay, so that's something to pay attention to in business and sport that I think really crosses over nicely. How about uh, a term often used in business, key performance indicators, um, your key goals and targets? What, how would you create that and how would you, within the team, uh, ensure that the team was, was – you are managing that uh, that team's progress towards the goals and doing course correction. Can you share a few insights into how you created the the key indicators of success and how you help the team to to manage them along that pathway and do course correction? Yeah, I mean it has changed over the years, and I think probably much the same in business. You know, because you can use data analysis so much more these days to be able to you know generate performance results and it's done on a computer where it may not have been. The principle is always the same. You know, you in, in rowing, you succeed if you row fast enough and you beat everybody who you go against. So, you know, it, it's simple from that sort of point of view, but there's so many other so many components that go into that to terms of to keep you on track that uh, today a lot of that is worked out through a lot of data analysis and GPS technology and biomechanics and the sport and the like there too. But and, and I do think that's really, really important. But ultimately, um, if you can keep winning, then you're on track more often than not. You know, and if you get beaten, then then you're off track. But I don't say that in any flippant way um, a, a, at all. Um, we have a lot of benchmarks in terms of what makes up a good performance. So if you are strong enough or you are fast enough over a certain distance and the like that they're all important markers everything you actually do um you need to train really well you know you need to be at it every day and if you're not so there's a key benchmark is that if you can't meet the training requirements from what you plan out then you'll be probably not ready for the final performance so that's a really important one and not that athletes that ilk are trying to not go to training but there can be reasons why not could be injury it could be the things that we're facing in Melbourne at the moment with COVID, um, you know, restrictions on your ability to train. And there's a whole range of mitigating factors at times there, but you're keeping data on it. You know, you've, you're using software programs, using heart rate monitors. So you, you, there's so much you know these days to know whether you're actually on track or not. Now, of course, the question you ask here is what if you're not on track? And, and, and there are three realms that we actually look at in sport, uh, which is you know, technical proficiency. Are you technically correct physically? How are you going physically? 
and that mentally, you know, how well are you thinking about what you're actually trying to actually do? So generally, you will look at those three domains and it, it could be evident in one of those particularly and one component of them that, that you're just not strong enough. You need to improve your gym work and the like. So it's, it's, it's run by data, it's run by analysis, but at the end of the day, the coach and the leader is still the one with the people saying, why is it aren't we performing? You know, it's, in the old days, you might take a hard stick at it and you just work them harder or, you know, you'd request more out of them, you know, demand more out of it. But these days there's much too, uh, more to it than that. There's welfare issues, you've got family, there's pressures in life and society on them. And you have to take those sort of things into consideration as well. And a lot of those things are very difficult. They're not things you, you can data and analyse. You know, that's your gut feel needs to come in somewhere along the line from that sort of point of view. But a, a lot of the time, honesty uh, and openness about the individual and the collective um, improvement requirement is really important. And I think there's uh, lots of synergies in business from that sort of point of view. When one department might be floundering and another part is flourishing, yet overall the business is performing at a certain level. You know, you've, you've got to bring all components in and be really honest about it. But what can you actually do to pick it up is a really more important part. It's very easy to focus on what's actually wrong the task is what do we do about rectifying that and what are exactly. the things we need to achieve that it can demonstrate that we are back on target and we can do that in a timely fashion. Otherwise, you might be improving, but you don't get there when, you, when the major competition's on. So, Noel, I've I, I got a couple of uh, bits that I think we can translate across the business as well. You've got key leading indicators with regards to whether they can actually do the training, uh, volume, uh, their mental state, technical, etc., and then you've got lagging indicators. Which what are the results? What are the ergo scores? What are the performance versus the competition? And then I picked up. So in business, you've got uh, key performance indicators on customer engagement, employee engagement. You've got lagging indicators like efficiency, uh, calls made uh, during the, the the quarter, sales results, profit, EBIT, cash flow, free cash flow, etc big piece around that that I see is also synergy is communication is key and maybe you could talk to a little bit about the fact that when you had a smaller a smaller network a smaller inner circle a smaller team a team that was of a different scope and size with the awesome force and then you moved in the late 90s into more of a national or a, or a larger role and how that communication changed. I can imagine it went from something that was very personal and very quick and agile to something that was perhaps a little bit more delegated and through a larger squad. Am I? Uh, absolutely. And, 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 when, and when, it gets, when it gets past that personal level, there's sometimes you're leading people who you don't know that well, for example, and they don't know you that well either, yet there's a job to be done. So the communication of that is vital. And, and I'd say that's some of the areas whereby it hadn't been in my skill set, whether I've developed it better or not. I think the jury could decide that. But that certainly is a much more difficult form of leadership is leading people who you don't know and don't know you and, and, and having the trust in, in what you're actually wanting them to deliver. Um, and sometimes when you've been successful, and they see the behaviour that you might have around the people who you've been successful with, they want you to be that same person with them, and at times you can't actually be. So immediately, you know, your credibility 
is challenged. And I get that and respect that enormously. So that's then incumbent on the leader to have that adaptability and flexibility to be able to understand their market and to find ways to be uh, fair across their sector, but maybe delivering that fairness in a different way. Um, and, and I think that's a significant challenge and would be in business today too. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a different leadership style that often um, leadership, leadership uh, schools or management techniques will start to articulate of how to lead in different you know, situational leadership. Perhaps we could, you could just give some context with regards to moving through to more of a national role in Australia before moving into, uh, you know, taking the success from the awesome force at a national level, and then you moved across to another country, which also shared a lot of success, didn't they? Uh, that's right, yeah. Um, in, in that national role, and I, this, this is quite interesting in terms of uh, business, you know, so I worked at headquarters, for want of a better word, but a lot of the departments were in our states. So we, before um, the national program was centralised, which is when I went to New Zealand, it was centralised. So we were running a national system in a decentralised manner. And so therefore, you know, you lack that ability to be as regularly face-to-face with people. Um, you know, you're communicating a lot of the time, whether it be the telephone or emails and the like. Uh, and it became the leadership style becomes a bit more demanding. This is what you have to actually do. Now, some people react well to, to that and others need a more human approach. So it was quite a challenge. And certainly uh, in Australian rowing, it's been much more successful in recent times when it's, when it's become centralised and there's one message from the top. It's a hard message, but it's a fair message and it's being given to everybody at the same time. So in my leadership style there, I had to try and give the message several times to several different people. And I may not have understood the way in which the people needed to hear the message. So to, to think that I led a team that well, you know, I, I, I worked hard at doing that. Um, I'm not certain that I was able to do that because my skill set was probably uh, a, a more personable approach and more direct and face-to-face is, is the nature of my personality, which I don't think is unimportant, you know, in terms of behaviours and, and people's individual personality and what do we expect of our leaders to give? You know, they are who they actually are. So the structure and appointment and the people who support you and who you delegate to, I think, are all really, really important pieces of that puzzle. Did you have uh, influence over the people that you picked there? And if so, what would what were the main... Um, capabilities and, and talents you were looking for, the people you pick in a team? Uh, yeah, well, in one, they were all good people. I think that's the important thing. And they were all good coaches in their own right. But our ability to maybe work together as a team was challenged because their team was their team on a day-to-day basis. And you came together infrequently and then expected their, their behaviours to be something different. So that, to me, was a challenge. So you didn't necessarily get to, to choose them because they were good people and they needed to be chosen anyway, you know. So it wasn't necessarily your team, um, but you had to work well with those people. So it, it, was, it was a significant challenge. And, um, you know, any business that – and if I, if I had an opportunity to go back over time, I think I would have made some recommendations 
to the hierarchy about how we came about our leadership style uh, more than I was able to do at that particular time. Can you give some insights into your reflections there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was also quite accountable to a, to a board, you know, and, and a board that wanted to probably have some input in terms of how we ran the structure and the like as well too. And I respect that. I, I understand that. But it certainly wasn't necessarily some of the decisions we would have made would have been decisions I would have made. So I think in reflection... I needed, I needed to be a better leader with my leaders also in terms of trying to put my vision across for what I think it actually needed to look like uh, and get the trust and the support in what I actually did. Um, certainly, I travelled enough. You know, I, was, I actually went to the venues quite a lot to make sure I was seen to be a leader, you know, a faced leader, not a faceless leader. Um, but probably the... I think probably in hindsight, if I was is to do that again, is I I would have needed maybe someone to mentor me as well too in terms of my leadership style and whether I was being effective or not. And I, and if I was to do that again in reflection, I would have probably tried to find someone who could give me that feedback as well too, because I sometimes I'm a good listener and other times you listen to what you want to actually hear. Um, and so, from that point of view, I could have I could have done with someone not 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 as a direct mentor, but someone giving me some pretty honest feedback in terms of my leadership style. That's great insight, Noel. And I think that's a common um, situation faced by leaders. They have a board, or they have an executive committee. That executive committee is either clear or or getting clearer on what they want, and therefore instruct. The, the incumbent leader, what they need to achieve. And then, of course, they need to go out into a either a decentralised or centralised organisation, so country leaders, and start to share the vision and then build it up. And um, often leadership is lonely, as they say. And I think that point on mentoring is, is, is also very valid for business, very valid for business. So in, in Australia in the past, a, a very successful system, but decentralized, uh, abundant with talent and talented coaches, some challenges with that you've just expressed. You then moved uh, uh, with your success. You went across to New Zealand to another very successful program. But it was uh, describe how that was set up, how it was different, and and what your your first um, insights were and process to build a plan there. Yeah, well, it, I mean, they. Had, I walked into something that had already been created um, in terms of success and centralisation. But one of the reasons, uh, partly because two reasons to be recruited, is that uh, the wonderful pair of Eric Murray and Hamish Bond needed a coach because they'd had a, a, a breakdown with the, the coach who had coached them for the four years prior to that. Um, and, and also they wanted to grow the program. It had been a very successful but small program in a relatively small rowing country, but a, but a sport that's very popular within the, within the country itself. So I sort of probably bought some of those, the ability to maybe coach the men's pair, but also to work in a bigger system. But we, we really then from then went on a bit of a journey together and they're a wonderful organisation, um, an organisation that, I think I was able to offer a lot too, and then maybe towards the end, when before I came back here, you know, 
offer a lot less uh, to them um, because the journey was it was needing to continue to evolve. And the, the first thing we needed to evolve was to evolve how a central life system could have more athletes and more coaches working harmoniously together. So that was actually a challenge for all of us. Um, I had different levels of leadership responsibility within that program over the six years that I was actually there. Um, but I think if, if I was to say the one thing that, cha that changed over time was the ability for us to get on and work really well together as a team. Um, and, and I'm of absolute admiration for a gentleman by the name of Gary Hay, who was the World Rowing Coach of the Year after 2019, coach of the women's eight women's pair and the women's head coach for the way in which he was able to build his team. So I think he would be a very interesting person for you to talk to in terms of leadership and, and, and leading teams because I, uh, Gary wouldn't run himself highly in that regard, but he's done an absolutely wonderful job in New Zealand. And it was a pleasure to work alongside him, which allowed me an opportunity to grow and me an opportunity to try and with my men's coaches to follow some of the lead that he'd actually done. So there's a whole range of things in that there too. One, we were trying to grow collectively the program and two was a little bit about learning from one another. Um, the Kiwi culture is a little bit different and, and some of the early part of the journey was, uh, and, and they would actually say it, we don't want you to tell us everything what to do. We need to grow ourselves as individuals and have our own autonomy even though we're working within it. So to respect the values of your other you know, leaders. We had people who were leading um, sculling campaigns and, and other parts of the, the, the business and underage and regional performance centres and the like was to allow them to grow whilst bringing them within inside a, a team, uh, uh, you know, the, the concept of being part of a team but being able to run their individual campaigns. And I, I thought we actually did that really, really well. So um, that, that was an aspiration of New Zealand, was it, to that uh, developing yourself and empowerment? Yeah, yeah, to, to allow the coaches to grow. Um, and that was part of me probably growing past it, you know, might have made some mistakes and growing past, but it's allowed others to grow at the same time, which is something that I'd be, you know, I'm really, really proud of in terms of my time there to be part of that journey of a group of people all working together for the same reason and being a leader within that. Um, so how did, you, how did you get... Sorry, Noel, how did you go about them bringing, knowing that that was their way of working and their, their aspiration, how did you bring the group to, you know, architect the plan, develop the vision? Um, the, the way we did that was, was there's just a, a, a unique common bond. One, they're very proud Kiwis to, you know, to represent their country. Two, we're all in this together because we all, you know, we all live there and train there. And we wanted to do it. And we were all having success, you know, here and there, not maybe everyone all the time, but there was a hell of a lot of success. And there still is a hell of a lot of success there. So it was quite easy for people to buy into it and then see the fruits of our good labours coming to fruition. So for a while there, um, it was a little bit of a dictatorship. And because of that, you know, there's some old school thinking there too and there were some great things done in terms of team workouts and the like. Everybody had to, on a Wednesday and a Saturday, work together. You know, if you didn't want to do that, you couldn't be part of the centre or the team. So that was like a rule. So it was, was, it was a bit of a dictatorship in the, 
in the early part of that, but it actually moved to everybody then seeing the value in this. And so the people and the personnel changed a bit over time, but everybody could see the value of being able to, you talked earlier about benchmarking and about KPIs and the like. Well, it was done really regularly and it was, you know, twice a week it was put up on the board. Every athlete, every coach knew where they actually stood. You know, the, the support staff would provide every coach with reporting mechanisms that gave you an idea there too. So the coaches could easily see, hey, the system's actually working for us. So even though we can do our own thing, we're going to still work within the system because we can actually see this is actually working. You know, we're so you're the- saying that you could, your athletes and coaches were seeing a benefit of all the data that was coming in rather than working the other way around, like working to the data. They were that- using that as a, as a tool so the science was complementing the art of coaching and, and sport. Very much so, you know, and I think they therefore, everybody felt part of the journey. So in, in our last conversation, we talked about sort of some touring and some funny things and things that happen every now and again. Well, you know, touring with those coaching staff, and although I might have been a leader within that fraternity, the, the the comradeship and everything we actually had was really, really wonderful. So I'm not surprised how things like momentum, you know, at major competition and the like really worked in our favour because they'd have been done by the lessons learned in the hard yards about how we operated on a daily basis and the like. And um, we had a lady there, Lynn Gunson. She was a very successful um, netball coach um, and, and she was our coach's coach for want of a better word too and she played a significant role in the mentorship and the education and the professional development of these coaches and, and certainly with Gary and I as the head coaches in terms of putting that plan together so um, yeah some really really great learnings from it and yeah they've made some changes with some younger stuff and made it more contemporary and and certainly sort of bringing the athletes along the journey a lot more now too. And, uh, you know, the, the athletes are, are, are a really, really big part of the journey there. So that's a system there but which is actually built from where it was in the early days through the period I had there, and that is growing in, into a you – know, it's morphing into a more contemporary model now as well too, which I think is a really, really good example of how you need to stay current. And, and to me, how they and the Australian centralised system – uh, uh, Hale is probably the two most successful systems in the world, and certainly by way of performances would indicate that. So you've you've come back to Australia, and interestingly, the Australian um, team has gone to a centralised system. So in a in a business framework, there's probably a lot of business leaders that are looking at their businesses run in geographies and different countries have autonomy and and P and Ls and ownership. Or it could be centralised in a business unit and the, the GBU is actually running vertically into a region and it's more centralised back into the business. So I think there's a lot of parallels there. But you've gone back to Australia now you're with the Victorian Institute of Sport and you're observing a, 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 a centralised system. Was that something you feel that they, they did to, to consciously improve, to, to evolve forward and why? Oh, absolutely, definitely. Um, we'd had versions of it, um, but but the federated system is a strength and a weakness in Australia at the same time. So uh, every state is a proud entity about what they can achieve, and certainly it's been shown no 
in no more true fashion at the moment with the, the way which we're um, managing the coronavirus with the different, each state has um, a premier uh, who, along with their health, uh, people are deciding whether they will open their borders to the adjoining state or not. So federalism has been at its most wonderful best in the most recent times, you know, when we've been in challenging situations. And yet we're, we're meant to, as a national team, perform together. So then to say to every, these people who are so proud of their own uh, backyard to say you've now got to all come and play in the same, same place. We'd had versions of it previously, but it was the courage of the conviction with some new administration and rowing Australia uh, after the um, Rio Olympic Games or, or the genesis of it beforehand uh, in the planning stages of it to, to go to a centralised system. And, and I implore them to do it. But it's interesting between the two countries, you know, we're both in a similar region of the world and I'm sure this actually happens in business where there were periods of time where each has been learning from the other, you know. And so uh, Andrew Matheson was the high performance manager while I was uh, in Australia. He was in New Zealand. He came to run Australia. So I worked with him there. He then went back again. So you've had people crossing back and forwards within our sport, looking at what one another's doing and trying to learn from each other and making some changes accordingly. So whether it be the two of us or looking at any other model anywhere else along the world, why wouldn't you look at world best practice or you know, others to help drive the things you need to do for change? One of, one of the benefits that you've shared with me on a, a centralised system is the fact that you're getting everyone is doing the same program. The, technically, they're, they're rowing to a, as much as they can a similar model or an approach. To, to rowing and in business, you could say that's a similar approach to marketing or selling or commercial organization structure, similar job titles, go-to-market model, et cetera. So on the sporting side, when you're, you're, you've brought everyone together, I get that, but how did you actually manage when it was decentralized and people were doing their own thing? What were the things that you focused on there to really make sure that you were still tracking towards the same aspiration? Yeah, it was, it was actually very difficult, you know, we, and, um, you know, I started the VIS in, was a, was a squad coach in 1990 and onwards and now, now back there again, but each state had a state institute and was, had a rowing program. The Australian Institute of Sport was based in Canberra and it was a national institute, which was the first of all the institutes to get together. And there was, there was significant debate about, where should you go? Should you stay home and be in your, in, your, in your club and your state program or should you go to the National Institute? And it was very, very difficult for the Australian Institute of Sport because the states actually became, I wouldn't say enemies at all, but that everyone was trying to make sure that they could play the role. Everyone was meant to do the right thing. So you, you, apart from needing to go to national events together, you basically ran your own program in your own state. So even when I... When I managed that program there too, you had to have a good respect for those programs that they were the ones that were doing the work for you at a national level. And at times you certainly got told that, you know, that um, you know, what, what they felt their role in that particularly was. So it would have been a, a, a very difficult thing to be able to take away that senior crew role from each of the states when they invested in a centralised program. But... The, the investment's gone back to each of the states now to be able to be a pathway within that too. So that is a, 
a business model in, in, in itself and changing what it actually used to do. And yeah, we still got our challenges within how, how we manage our pathway programs. Things, you know, will always continue to evolve, but it certainly allowed the top end of the sport to perform for the reasons that you actually said, Bill, you know, the training's the same, it's tough, they're, they're, they're supported, they're funded. There's a whole range of really good things that come out of a centralised system that we couldn't actually achieve prior to that. Even though we were trying to resource and support, we couldn't do it to the same level that we can today. How, how often would you bring together the, the different um, crew coaches no? from around the country, both in New Zealand and Australia, to get on the same page or just to, to touch on communication? Yeah, well, the, um, in New Zealand, of course, they're all under the one roof pretty much, um, so that's every day. Um, the regional performance centres, which are like the states here, there's only four of them. One was next door, one was two hours away, and the other two a bit further away. So in a smaller country, very, very easy to do it. But one, one of the real challenges of a federated system in a country the size of Australia um, always was it's a long way to bring people together. Um, so maybe some of the learnings out of COVID is also, you know, doing things virtually that we maybe could have done previously, but we chose or, or, or didn't know of or didn't actually do. So it, it was, it wouldn't say a chore, but to bring people together, they valued their time. It took time. It cost money um, to bring to bring people together. And sometimes people couldn't see necessarily the reason why, because you had competent people. So I've come into a national camp. We've all got together. We're talking about some what we think are some really good things, but I'm going to go home and prepare in my own backyard again anyway, and that's, that's, that's out of my head and out of my system until we actually then travel together and then you're trying to get people who aren't used to working together all that often. You've brought them together here and now. We all know what the objective was to get the best result we possibly could, but we, we kept learning on the job. So there's a lot of wasted time in a federated system to a centralised system and, and a lot of duplication and, and, a, and, a, and a lot of wasted um, uh, finance as well too. Yeah, I'd imagine it'd be quite hard to keep track on that, wouldn't it? It's a bit like in in uh, sales meetings that happen once a year or at least once a quarter and then what happens when all those other days when, when they're out there with the customers and likewise with the, with the rowing coaches and then changing to that centralised model. Clearly, communication I pick up is is got to be a key thing right now, um, and the the centralised system helps with that. How about the 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 evolution and progress? What we I mean, other than results, um, how would you you keep track on the entire system? What were some of the processes that you used in both New Zealand and Australia to keep track on? how the, the system, and by the system I mean coaches, athletes, support teams, were progressing towards goals. And I'll just put a, a, a little um, uh, call out in there. I'd imagine that on your way to the, the Olympic cycle, there could be periods where you knew that you would be intentionally behind in order to correct or make some course corrections. And how did you manage that where perhaps athletes were we're not at world's best time three years out from an Olympics. Yeah, if you, if you look look at the Australian model, because it's um, because of the geography, which is a really important part, which is like having you know different parts of your business in 
all over the world, perhaps, you know, for some multinationals uh, and, and the like. But we had ergometer testing, so that was a really easy thing to do sort of physically. Um, but because, I wouldn't say a litigative system, but because you were trying to make it fair and you were trying to make it a national system and everyone was entitled to an opportunity to be able to you know, have every right to be selected, we needed to come together at things like selection events, which was a bit like I was saying before. They become, it's a lot of time, uh, it's costly, um, and you'd race against one another. But the, the, because of the geography, you actually had to do these to try and be fair. But the fact that you ran a competition, there had to be an outcome to that competition. Mm. So therefore, you are always being scrutinised. So it was very difficult to be able to think longer term. It was very difficult to be able to keep your eye on the prize. One particular year, we were able to do it with the with the four. And in another part of the campaign, we had to bring our best you know, earlier in the campaign. Otherwise, we may not have even got in the team. Also, most of our international performances are in the Northern Hemisphere. And so traditionally, uh, the, the Southern Hemisphere countries have to select their teams earlier because they've got to travel um, you know, rowing boats have got to get there. You've got to be well planned, organised. You need to go for lead up regattas and the like. So, you know, you're normally performing way, way, way before a world championships or a benchmark event, purely and simply to get in the team, because you're not able to sort of train side by side with these people. So you had to bring them together in a formal competition called selection regattas and the like. And they still go on today, but but at least most of the people who are going to be in the team are all training together so, and you're on the one program. So if you, if you went in thinking long-term and went in underprepared and got beaten in a selection regatta, well, you were behind the eight ball. So you, part of your overall planning always was to take into consideration the rules of the game, you know, that mm. you needed to perform every single time that you were asked to perform. Uh, and that's challenging for people who maybe when they're getting older and they don't have as many top-end performances in them and the like too. So uh, not only does centralisation help a lot of other things, it does actually help athlete performance in terms of being able to plan out the training for the major competition being when um, they're giving out the chocolate, so to speak. So, um, so yeah, different, different advantages for different reasons. And if it, Whereas New Zealand, my experience is primarily there is all from being centralised uh, and the rules were you needed to be in the system if you wanted to be in the team. So you had, had them under your watch 11 months of the year anyway. So it was a lot more. And you'd still have the formal competitions and those sort of things too. But it was as, as much an extension to training as it was to a competition in its own right. Noel, how much, how much input did uh, in the, the latter years the athletes have to their training plan and also the you know identifying some of these major goals and bringing awareness on the testing, the, you know where they were going to really peak and and hit it home and and the consensus between I call it management and athletes. Yeah, that, that, that's actually interesting, and um, you know you, you'd you'd be wise in some senses to talk to other people maybe who are. You know, run successful campaigns, but have run centralised campaigns where there are responsibilities for the entire team. Of which, that was sort of my New Zealand experience. But certainly, 
there's a little bit of a difference between the Australian and New Zealand system, as I as I indicated before, about each coach wanting to have that autonomy and, and, and that not only autonomy to their programming, but to some of the planning associated with, with it. I get a sense of feeling within our Australian centralised program, it's not so much a one-size-fits-all, but the responsibilities of the leaders within that is to the entire team. The history that I have is is more so with that responsibility to the particular crew. And, and even in a centralised system in New Zealand, if you use the Kiwi pair, because they were experienced and successful and could survive uh, the, the selection system without putting their best foot forward early on, you could run a very individualised program. So, again, there's not there's not a one-size-fits-all program, whether you're centralised or whether you're, you're decentralised, whether you're coaching a crew, whether you're a head coach. It's got to be a very fluid situation about how much you know, particular leadership you put into any particular campaign or any particular crew. But I, I think that's a sense of the continuing challenge as well too. I like that, you know. And, and to succeed, people are going to keep needing to change the plan and change the model and and um, and keep it. And so the other question was a little bit of how much buy-in does the athlete get? In a centralised system, for some of the athletes, they don't get a big say in that. You know, they get told, for want of a better word. When you hit the top of the tree, of course, the more successful you are, the more you get a buy-in to that particular plan. So, again... Within any system, there are different examples and um, for, for different crews for different reasons. Yeah, I, f- I find that fascinating, Noel, that the, these athletes are doing, I don't know, what, upwards of 30 hours a week, some of them training, um, extremely demanding, and they're, they're told what to do. Um, you know, and there's, I'm just interested to know if there's a bit of a, you know, this is the framework, these are the goals, and and a consensus, almost like a, well, it's a co-creation, isn't it, with the athletes? And I'm, I'm sensing that that's not what necessarily happens unless you get uber successful and you can start to influence it. Is that what I'm sensing? Yeah, that, that's right. And so, again, and I'm, I'm not saying one model is necessarily more correct than another. Um, there's in our men's training centralized system at the moment, you know, one of the things that it's been successful is that even the successful athletes have had to perform really well to, to, to stay within the same successful boat. Because if you get a, a better opposition come along, you might need to go faster yourself. So it kept, it keeps internal pressure on and, and a different method. So instead of it maybe being a, a humanized way of looking at how can we being the small unit perform better to be able to meet the changes in demand it might be can we get someone else who is better in that in, in that mix that's going to make make us be able to meet that demand as well too so it's it's sometimes it's a bit of a business model as to seek from a humanized model and that may be necessary as well too you know it might be that you do need that you know that you might have won this year, but along comes someone much better and you don't have the capacity to win no matter how well you communicate, how well you get on, how well you co-cooperate without having different people in, in, in that crew. 
or business unit or whatever it might actually be. So there has to be a cutthroat element to it as well. So And who makes that call, Noel? Is that, is that the leader, the, the head coach? Uh, the, the head coach pulls most of the shots in that, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it's very similar to business in a sense that the, the, the results are, are, are cut and dry. They're well-defined. Uh, it's competition is always um, is learning to to find a way around, and I guess uh, in business it's it's not as clear cut as in sport. You're the first across the line, or you're the second, third, fourth, etc. And uh, there's a performance that we know uh, is is very tightly measured and monitored. Interesting. Yeah, so I think- but the, the head coach's head is on the line first, though. That's 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 the interesting thing, and uh, we we've had wonderful debates about that in um, it's probably both countries about you know ultimately who is responsible, particularly when you haven't performed well, and and, and I know that a lot of people feel like they need their autonomy to do things their own way because otherwise, if they don't own the program, how can they be judged? Uh, and it's been it's been a real certainly a trick, you know, when there are teams within teams um, about ultimately who is responsible, and and, and I, I had that discussion on many an occasion, certainly in Australia, saying ultimately the buck will stop with me. But a particular coach says yes, but if you don't select me next year, because I haven't done as well there too, the buck is stopping with me. So it's it's a very difficult challenge, you know, to get people to be confident and understand that they're allowed to make some mistakes uh, and their neck will not be on the line. I think everybody feels in high-performance sport particularly quite uh, accountable to the end result and therefore you want to have a say in it, you know, and, and I, I get that, you know. Yeah, so there, there comes the, the challenge with centralised, decentralised. Decentralised, probably more of a say in it, more accountability uh, through that autonomy, the co-creation. And in a centralized system, also there's a higher communication. There's a there's a straighter line to uh, the athlete and making sure that there's direct impact and influence. But then there's also this accountability piece, right? I totally get that. So some of the lessons learned, Noel. What would you, when you look back at the three systems, or there's more that you've you've worked in, but the three that we've talked to today, um, what would you do differently in hindsight? Some of the, you know. I mean, clearly, with some of the successful campaigns, you probably wouldn't do much different. But what what are some of the lessons you've learned? Well, I, I actually wrote some notes here, Bill. And uh, the question is, is lessons learned? And I wrote very little in the successful campaigns and <laughs> with what didn't go as well, <laughs> which I just articulated about, you know. So <clears throat> even though you always reviewed and respected you you won this year, but you know it, it, you're only world champion for the, the period of time you are. Next year is a new competition, um, and, and I said for the unsuccessful, what comes to mind firstly is that not leading as well, expecting my usual methods, being successful, and not altering or cutting my cloth to suit. The most notable part of this failure would be in communication and people management, even if the team were not as capable as the opposition. I've had plenty mm. of students that were also like wings because you got everything out of the performance you could. Often targeting a lower outcome is much more realistic, so it becomes a win. Um, 
but yeah, when you haven't done as well there too, you know, I think the first thing is to look at yourself um, in that. So even though you might come in a very business clinical model in, in a centralised situation, if you haven't succeeded, I still think you've got to come back and see, you know, what, what did the leadership actually do? What did they get it right, you know? Um, and, and I think the more we go forward with our younger generation, I do feel we're really going to have to work along that path. Um, and, and even within a centralised system, you know, the, the communication and, and the, the, the atmosphere that you create in training centres and the like is going to be really, really important for harmony and good performance. You may not perform as deep because some people might may need a bit more pushing and aren't able to take that responsibility on themselves. But for your top end results, I think you're going to need to probably... Um, you come at it in a really communicative, human way, um, no matter how, how hard the message is and how hard the, the, the training environment needs to be. Mm, interesting. How, how often would you do a plan and review session, no? Uh, again, it really depends on the groups you're with. I'll, I'll give you an absolute... Well, a couple of examples. The more, the more recent one is the Kiwi pair. They hated meetings. They'd try and duck away from them. You know, even an education system, you know, you'd, try and, you'd see them sit near the back and sneak out the back door and want to have to go home to the family or whatever it might actually be and the like. Uh, but when you said, right, we're, we're going to pre-brief and debrief twice a year with this campaign... I've never, for two people who were quite different and unique as a small team, I've never had more success in my life in both aspects of briefing and debriefing a campaign and being able to stick to plan. And so in that situation, less really was more. Um, mm -hmm. And if we needed to continue to review it, there's only one situation where we had you know, a bit of a sit down, we might have been going how, how we wanted to, but that was just a, a pretty hard conversation one night and then we got on with the job and didn't need to be done again. But they were absolute masters of it. Whereas you get some crews there that, that, that almost need it daily, you know, and you'd see people in meeting rooms all the time trying to plan, plot and whatever, and sometimes you're worried that that's far, far too much. They haven't bought in or they can't agree to what you actually need to do. And that's frustrating. And I've had some of that. And sometimes when we have in our sport an eight-hoard boat, so you've got eight rowers and a coxswain and a coach and you've got your, your inner team and all you've got, to, there's a myriad of people involved in it. Damn hard, you know, to be, you know, unless it's culturally bred into you and the like, um, to be able to get that number of people on the same page, campaign after campaign, gee, it's tough. It really is. And I admire the people who do it really, really well. Um, and, and certainly you know, the awesome foursome days there too, that one particular day we did a drivers and inhibitors, well, that carried us through a long period. You know, we, we were able to review that here and there, but it didn't need to be done that often, you know. Um, we took aspects of it the night before the Olympic final in 1996, a couple of things, couple of, we hadn't performed well in the semi-final and there were a couple of things that were behavioural things that weren't part of what our DNA was. And what so, was that, Noel? 
that honest reminder of one another. They they weren't working together was a key thing, and that was one of the key tenets of it. You know, we're in this together, no matter who's the best athlete in the. But there's always a pecking order. Someone's better than someone else, but you know that they were they were to be a unit, and they went away from that somewhat there too. They only needed reminding, and it was a very powerful tomb. So because you'd planned that out, and it was part of the things that you. Your operating behaviours and models, gee, it was so easy to bring it back and come back on track again. But without that in the first place, you wouldn't be able to bring, use that as a tool to be able to bring you back on and, and perform. So it sounds so, like even before you got the, you know, the, the, the drivers and inhibitors, you had an agreement on ways of working. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And when you stray from that, then there's a, there's that trust and accountability factor. They're, they're easy buzzwords to throw around, um, but, but it's reality. It's rea- It's reality. And so, if you went off track, it would often be because you weren't behaving in the way in which you needed to do. You know, so what do you do? You just redirect yourself and get back on again. There might have been some specifics that needed addressing, or there might have been some technical or some physical. But certainly, when it comes down to human behaviour and performance. It, it's it's very easy to remind yourself. And if you don't redirect, that's really a sign that you're probably not going to perform. You know, you, you've lost your way or or it might be that you're performing poorly enough that you can't resurrect it as well too. You know? And that happens, you know, and then, then it's a rebuild type of scenario. So, No, like 100%. So less, so less is more campaign is good. Less is more. But I think, you know, what you've touched on in the, the last bits of the, our conversation here are probably the key first bits. Uh, for any business leader that's looking to take on a new team, a project, um, uh, whatever, or actually a, a coach in a, in a rowing club, is defining the ways of working with the team and with the inner team and the crew and the support and the parents and and, and partners, et cetera, is absolutely critical because without those, that agreement, that consensus together on how we will work together, I think it's very difficult to then go forward with trust and openness and a safe space to then create, well, what are our goals? How are we going to do it? What commitment do I give to you, Noel? How, am I, how are you going to know when I'm on track, when I'm not on track, and how are we going to keep each other accountable? And for a business leader and even for a rowing coach or any athletic coach, it may feel or seem to be very uh, ineffective to in, you know, waste time, so to speak, in having a meeting to agree on ways of working. But in fact, it'll probably be the most effective piece of work you'll ever do. Because once you've got that defined, it's on the same page, so to speak. They may not agree on everything, but the trust is there and they can call out, like you said, the awesome foursome did, uh, you know, after the semifinals, which did the course correction for them in their head, right? I think it's a key piece. I just want to maybe get your thoughts on that and correct me if, if you think I'm flying off in the wrong direction. No, no, I, I think you're right. Um, there, there are other ways sort of today because of the, you know, the, the need for accountability within yeah, government-funded systems and the like there too. You know, every athlete has to have an individual performance plan and there are things there that, that were done a bit more fluently by way of conversation that are now really, really important parts of what they do. But that's an individual basis. You've then got to bring what I want together with your crewmates and what do they want as well too. So there's still a bit of an art associated with 
when you have that meeting and you know what each individual wants, but sometimes what when it doesn't work well is when your individual needs are not shared as well. And, um, and, and I think that's a really important one there too. I actually need to know what my teammates trying to actually do because I can't get up them for the rent if I don't know what the part of the plan is well there too. So there are some things within your individual plan that could stay within yourself or within your own specific tight team or the coach. But the majority of what you're actually trying to do need to be known. And I think that's an era in the modern times that we're, we need to probably make sure we continue to do and do well because I don't think it's just done. It was done a bit more fluently uh, and personalised, but the moment it becomes institutionalised, sometimes we lose that ability to be able to look at one another in the eye and to know what each other's trying to actually do as part of our overall plan. So you've got the, the crew, but you've got the individual, you know, um, fitting in there. And, of course, then you've got the wider team, you know, in our sport. No, this has been a, we've covered a lot of ground, haven't we? My goodness. And I think this is going to be some gold dust there for business leaders and rowing coaches around the world. Uh, but finally, is there anything I haven't asked you that perhaps I should have? Um, no, I don't think so, Bill. You know, I think um, sort of where I come from is I'm quite, uh, quite applied, you know, and I really admire the business model to it. But I think, um, I think there's still, still a, a place for something being actually quite applied and actual and, and factual and, and, and it's fluid and, and, and you just feel part of it, you know. I think that's really – it's hard to articulate that. And that sounds like a lot of um, a waffle in one sense, you know, who would want to run a business that way there too. But when you see your people empowered and invested in what you're actually trying to do and you're enjoying what you do, and yet you know there's some really strong, sound principles that sit behind it, you're generally away pretty well and you feel pretty good about your campaign. Absolutely. Finally, how can people connect with you, Noel? Website, Twitter, Instagram? Well, I, I don't see myself as a salesman, where some do or whatever, but I'm really happy to you know, help people. Um, as I said at the very beginning, you know, part of my mantle is sort of giving back and, and the like, and, and so I'll continue to do that. I have a Facebook account, which I post things on every now and again. That's just Noel Donaldson. Just look me up, Melbourne, Australia. Um, I have an Instagram, which is uh, Noel underscore Donaldson. Uh, and and I, I, I love LinkedIn, actually, because I find sort of my learnings from business to sport come far more there on that platform than it does about people's uh, pretty pictures on um, Instagram and Facebook. So uh, that's also Noel Donaldson. And I'll I'll make sure, Bill, you've got a copy of the actual link if people want to find me. There might be two of me. You never know. Thanks, Noel. You've been terrific. Join me next time when I'll be talking with one of the rowing world's most interesting people. And if you like this episode, you can subscribe so you never miss an episode in the future. Oh, and please, if you like it, leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out. You can find out more about our unique training system and high-performance coaching by visiting whchambers.com